All right, open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis 20, we are progressing in the grand tale of God's amazing grace upon sinners, and that's what all of God's Word is, as well as Genesis in particular. So let's read Genesis chapter 20 together, and then we will take a closer look. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man, because the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you? that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin. You have done deeds to me that ought not be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place. Wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brothers a thousand pieces of silver. Excuse me. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. I confess once again, this is a challenging text to preach. There are many snares and pitfalls and traps, theologically, morally, and otherwise, in this text. And that's the beauty of preaching God's Word from Genesis to Revelation expositionally, is we must deal with the truth in all of its details, and better yet, we must let it deal with us. And so I'm excited to open chapter 20 up with you and to peer in and be edified by it. The title of this morning's message is Faithfulness and Foolishness, subtitled, God is Faithful Even When We Aren't. So faithfulness and foolishness. The first point, God is all-knowing and all-powerful, verses 1 through 7. God is all-knowing and all-powerful. Let's look there again. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah's wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister, and she, even she herself, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. 
And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall die. You shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God is all-knowing and all-powerful. This book that we call the Bible isn't about Adam. It's not about Eve. It's not about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. It's not about Paul or Peter or Luke or Mark or John Mark or any other man or woman. It's not about Rahab. Um, It's all about God. It's God's book. It's about God. And there's one hero, ultimately, God. There's one main character, and it's God. And we, at times, look to men like the Apostle Paul or men like Abraham, and we say, be like that in certain ways when they're expressing faith, when by the grace of God they're walking in faith. And that's good and commendable. And they ought to be able to say, follow Yahweh, Uh, or follow me as I follow Yahweh, Old Testament, or follow me as I follow Christ, New Testament, in the ways that they are following Christ or Yahweh. Indeed, we can follow after them, but it's not ultimately about them. We're not the church of Paul. We're the church of Jesus Christ, and it's not the Israel of Abraham. It's the Israel of Yahweh. And so, God is faithful, and this is a book of God's faithfulness. God is holy, and it's a book that reveals God's holiness. But in contrast to God's holiness and God's faithfulness, we see our unholiness and our unfaithfulness. And we see that in particular in this text here today. And so we have Abraham, and it doesn't say why, journeying south, and the why of it uh, is not vital, but he's journeying south, and he's dwelling between Kadesh and Shur, and he stays in Gerar, the city of Gerar. This is a Philistine city there uh, near the border of Egypt. And Abraham said of Sarah's wife in this city, she's my sister. And the word gets out that Abraham's there with his sister. And his sister um, uh, is his wife, of course. And this happened once before, you'll recall, back in uh, Genesis 12, I believe it was. And in Genesis 12, he said, this is my sister. And Pharaoh takes his sister, his wife, into his harem, and nothing happens by the grace of God. And once again, uh, Pharaoh uh, finds out that this is his wife, and she is restored unto her husband. Uh, what we find here is that Abraham is committing the same error, that he is going down the same path of foolishness. And the king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. And God came this time through special revelation to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And we come to our first theological problem because God said, you're a dead man. You took another man's wife. And yet we've already read the whole chapter. The man doesn't die. And so is God not a man of his word? Um, Excuse me, is he not a deity of his word? And the answer, of course, is yes. He is a deity of his word. And yet uh, the Lord has given us his word in what we call a anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic language, meaning it's how we commonly understand and how we commonly see human beings interact. God interacts in his recorded word in that way. What do we know about God? We know that he is sovereign. We know that he is all-powerful. Uh, we know that he is omniscient. He is all Knowing. And so God knows that Abimelech, one, didn't lay a hand on her. Two, that Abimelech is innocent. He has no knowledge of the situation. And three, that Abimelech is going to give Abraham back his wife. And so God knows that he's going to spare his life. Nevertheless, God says uh, that you are a dead 
man, for you've taken another man's wife. And in a similar way, you'll recall uh, in the story of Jonah that God told Jonah in chapter 3, after telling him in chapter 1, and Jonah becoming fish food, uh, but in chapter 3, God again says to Jonah a second time, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. And this is the message God told him to preach. And Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so the, the message of God was, You've got forty days, and you'll be crushed. You'll be wiped out. You'll be overthrown. Uh, by the hand of God directly or by enemies that he raises up against you. And so that was the judgment of God declared upon them. And yet we know that the reason Jonah didn't want to go is because Jonah was already convinced that God was going to be gracious and merciful and that he was not going to carry out the judgment that he had pronounced. And of course, he was gracious and merciful, as we see in verse 5 of Jonah 3. So the people of Nineveh believed God proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. There was a national revival. A whole city-state repented and bent the knee to Yahweh, the one true God. And so how do we, how do we understand that? Well, Ezekiel 33.14 says this, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, if he turns from his sin and does, not, and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what was stolen and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live and shall not die. None of his sins, which he has committed, shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. And so the Lord has made provision in his word even to provide the inspired commentary to us as to how to understand Jonah 3, how to understand Genesis 20, when the Lord pronounces seemingly certain judgment and yet relents. How we're not to understand it is that God changed his mind. For God to change his mind, he would have to not know the outcome uh, that was uh, already foreordained. And it's impossible for God to not know the outcome that he has foreordained. It's impossible for God not to know anything. He's omniscient and he's omnipotent. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And so we have a God who knows. And we cannot read scripture ignorant of who God is and receive these anthropomorphic uh, narrative declarations as theology. We need to interpret scripture with scripture and come out with it a biblical theology from the entire message of God's Word. And there are those today that resist that. And they're double-minded. They're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They want God to be ignorant. They want to diminish God. They want to bring God down and make Him not just a God who communicates in an anthropomorphic manner, but a God that is very much like man and is thus weak and ignorant and learning and developing. And, and they find that God much more approachable. The only problem with that God is that God doesn't exist. And that God isn't very godlike. Now, is he? Uh, the God that exists, the only God that there is, is omniscient. He is omnipotent. And he's omnipresent. And so, when you read things like this, don't think, oh, God changed his mind. No, God doesn't change his mind. Why do you change your mind? You change your mind because things don't work out the way you thought they were going to work out. And so we've got to change course. Well, God never has a day where it doesn't work out how he thought it was going to work out because he didn't just think it was going to work out that way. He works it out the way he intends it to work out, where he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so... That is the first theological little challenge here in Genesis chapter 20. And we've touched on it already in Genesis, but it's important to grasp these theological issues and rightly divide the narrative, the narrative, which is a story of God's working with men versus a didactic text, which is more of a teaching. Thus saith the Lord, this is pure theology. One commentator explains... 
God does not change his mind, not in an eternal sense. However, we do see verses in the Bible that imply he does in a temporal sense. We have to understand that God has revealed himself to us in what we call anthropomorphic revelation. This means that he has lowered himself to our level and speaks to us in a manner that is consistent with our understanding. Consider how God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. God, who is the infinite being who encompasses the entire universe, became like us so that we could communicate with him. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and hid themselves, God said, Adam, where are you? That's the first place we touched on this. I said, did God not know? Where is he? I created this guy and he's run off on me. He ran off with that girl. What was her name? Does God not know? Does God forget? Of course he knows. Should we conclude that God, who knows everything, didn't know where Adam was? Of course not. He was asking not just about Adam's location, but also about his spiritual condition. This illustrates that at the very beginning of God's communication with us, he spoke in a manner that relates to us in our time frame from our perspective. That is why God in the garden went looking for Adam, because he was working from our perspective. We know that God has from all eternity ordained whatsoever shall come to pass, because he works all things after the counsel of his wills, Ephesians 1.11 declares. However, when he deals with us, we see verses that say he changes his mind seemingly. Uh, Exodus 32.14 says, So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. That, that's, I mean, that, that's the pinnacle of anthropomorphic language there. He changed his mind, it says literally, and yet we know theologically God did not change his mind. Now, Jeremiah 26.19 says, Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. Uh, again, the Lord changed his mind. Anthropomorphic language, not literal. Not literal. And so we must interpret Scripture with Scripture and not uh, read a narrative text and come out the other side of it a heretic uh, with a God who does not know, a God who is not omniscient, uh, a God who is much like a Greek God or a Roman God that are simply the construct of man's mind. Idols that do not exist. This commentator goes on. He says, The fact is that God knows all things, and He has known it all forever. To say that God would actually change His mind would imply that God, who is supposed to have known all things forever, decided to act in a manner that was different from what He had always known He would do. He would have known that He was going to change His mind, which means He isn't changing His mind, because He knew what He was going to do. So how is he really changing his mind? If he decided to do something all along that only appears to us that he changed his mind. Consider how God would sometimes pronounce judgment on nations, saying that he was going to destroy them, and sometimes those nations would repent. God then relented from judging them. In other words, he changed his mind and didn't judge them, even though he said that he would. Are we to say that God didn't know from all eternity that they would repent? Of course he knew. How is it that men repent? Repentance is a gift of God, as is faith. How do we know that he didn't say that he would destroy them to get them to repent, uh, which was according to his plan? Furthermore, God holding back his judgment is consistent with what he already said elsewhere, Jeremiah 18.8, if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. So what we're seeing is God changed his mind from our perspective, but from the eternal perspective, he never did. He's not surprised by our choices. He does not have to adapt to our mistakes or our plans. He works all things after the counsel of his will, and he does so eternally and perfectly. And so God is all-knowing and all-powerful. This little event here did not come as a surprise to God. Uh, When Abimelech brought Sarah into his home and did not touch her, was in no way involved with her romantically. God says, yes, I know that you didn't do that. You don't have to tell me, actually. I'm already fully aware. And here's why. Let me let you in, Abimelech, on a little secret. Not only do you not have to tell me that you weren't romantically involved with her, I'll tell you why. You weren't romantically involved with her because I withheld you from sinning against me. 
I held you back. That's why. And that's a glorious reality. Another precious truth here is that when we do not sin, it's because God keeps us from sinning. To God belongs all the glory. That's the final sola of the five solas of our faith, sola de gloria. To God belongs all the glory. Because not only does he save us, but he sanctifies us, and he keeps us from sin as believers, but also even as non-believers before we, by his grace, come to repentance and faith. We were not as sinful as we might have been because God kept us from it, which leads to another pondering, another question, another reality. God withheld Abimelech's hand, but he allowed Abraham to put Sarah in that position, which is very interesting. And I've got to say that God allowed it for our edification, even as he allowed David to fall in that horrific sin with Bathsheba and then to murder Uriah. It's for our edification. It's that we might be humble and that we might know that it is God who is gracious to sinners. It's God's amazing grace on display, not God's amazing man on display, unless you're looking at the man who is Christ Jesus, the God-man. It's not, hey, be like Abraham so much as, hey, be like God. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. Again, as, as Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Paul or Peter or any man in the Bible or any dear sister in the Bible are walking by faith in the light of the word, in holiness that is worthy of emulation. But ultimately, we're looking to emulate God, our Father, and Jesus, our elder brother. And so, verse 4, But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister, and she even herself, he is my brother, in the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So much going on here. Let me start with the end of that. He gives one more threat there. Know that if you don't restore, you shall surely die, even though he already knows that he is going to restore. But God has a means. And part of God's means is the message, the message of certain destruction if you sin against me. And there are those today that want to diminish the reality of hell, want to diminish the reality of God's judgment upon sinners and say that we should downplay that. We, you know, we, we must make God appealing. We need to be good PR, public relations experts for God, and make God appealing to sinners. And it would start with not calling sinners sinners, right? We should call them uh, marginalized, uh, broken, hurting um, people, victims, They're not sinners, they're victims. We should join psychology and make every man, woman, and child a victim. And the ultimate victimizer is not the fellow man, although all our fellow human beings, starting with mom and dad, of course, are colossal victimizers. But the victimizer of victimizers is, of course, to the fallen world, God. God himself. And so that's incredibly unhealthy. No, no, people are not fundamentally victims. They are fundamentally sinners victimizing others. And that's how they need to see themselves, not as, as a broken victim uh, of other broken people, um, but a sinner before a holy God who needs to repent. And so we hold fast to the biblical construct of truth regarding the nature of man and the just judgment of a holy God upon man's sin And we communicate that message clearly as a vehicle to compel sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Uh, The reality of hell was preached by Jesus more than anyone else, that they might learn the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, the fear of God, and turn from sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the only Savior. And here we see God, the Father, 
God speaking in a dream to Abimelech in the same manner, bringing just and holy threatenings upon him, ultimately to compel him to do what God already means to work within him. Faith, brothers and sisters, comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Don't hold back the word of God, thinking that's going to benefit people. No, it comes by hearing the word of God. And what sinners need to hear is about sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's what Jesus said. That's why I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He's going to come convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So Abimelech was convicted. I have hopes that Abimelech might actually be in glory. That This wasn't just a singular conviction over a singular potential sin. But when you get a special revelation from Yahweh and you make it into the pages of Scripture with that special revelation, and you're calling the Lord, Lord, and obeying Him, that gives me hope that indeed He might be a trophy of grace, as well as Lot, as well as Lot, as well as Abraham, and the rest of the men and women on the pages of Scripture. we got lying Abraham and lying Sarah. And of course, Abraham is more accountable. Abraham is the one who asked her to lie. Uh, but Abimelech's put out. She herself, she, even she herself, said, he is my brother. Uh, look, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. They both lied to me. More needs to be dealt with. A few more issues here. In verse uh, 6, I also withheld you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Praise be to God. Verse 7, now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you shall live. More challenges here. God is owning his prophet. His prophet that you might think God would disown and say, this disreputable bumpkin, what is he doing now? He's making a mess of things. He's shaming my holy name. And I'm in no way arguing for unholy prophets or unholy preachers or unholy fathers or unholy mothers or unholy men or women being a a design that we ought to embrace. And look at God. He's all the more glorified. Romans 6 come to mind, anyone? Let us sin all the more that God's grace will be all the more glorious. And the Apostle Paul answers that statement that was posed as a question in Romans 6 by saying, no, by no means. <laughs> no, no, Die to sin, live for Christ. That's the standard. But nevertheless, we all yet have sin within us this side of heaven, and we all yet would play the David, staying home from battle, beholding and lusting after Bathsheba, impregnating her and murdering her husband, except by the grace of God, we would all play the Abraham and say, ah, my sister, which isn't as bad as what David did at all, but is nevertheless distasteful and sinful and uh, in no way the character of a prophet of God that we would want to tell anyone about. And yet God not only owns him in that moment of time before Abimelech, God owns him for all time in Holy Scripture. And and we're forced to look at it and to deal with it. Because Abraham's not the hero. God is. It's not about Abraham. It's about God and his amazing grace. And ultimately, Abraham is a messenger of God who is holy, and of God's amazing grace. And by recording Abraham's sin for us to see and David's sin for us to see and so forth, we see God in his holiness, we see man in his sinfulness, and we see God's amazing grace upon sinners. And that ultimately is the message of the whole book. And so there's a reason that God allowed King David to fall as he did. There's a reason God allowed Abraham to fall as he did. There's a reason God allowed Jonah to be this mad rebel prophet who says, I'm not going. You can't make me. I'm going to take a nap down in the belly of this ship. That's what I'm going to do. Right? There's a reason so that we can look upon these lives and say, oh, 
I don't want that to be me. I don't want to go that way. And so we can look upon these lives and see God's amazing grace. Oh, wait, that is me. (laughs) And there's hope, not in my righteousness, but God's righteousness through his son, Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone. He is a prophet. He will pray for you. You shall live. So Abraham's in the position of authority. Abraham's in the position of a real prophet. Abraham is going to pray for you, Abimelech, and you will live. You'll not fall under my judgment. It's astounding. And we've already read it, and we'll get to it in a bit, but that's exactly what happens. Not because of who Abraham is, but because of who Abraham serves. And so don't forget that as well. You have a powerful life to live with a vast influence upon the men and women and children around you. And it's not because you're perfect. It's because God is perfect and his plan is perfect. It's not because your witness is perfect. It's not because your character is perfect. It's because his message is perfect and Imperfect messengers are used mightily of the Lord. And so don't ever think, well, I can't can't speak. No, you can speak. It's not about you. It's about God. You must speak because it's not about you. It's about God. And you must pray. And God in His grace may well save Abimelech's in your life from death physically and eternally. He will pray for you, and you shall live. All right, we've got to move on from the first point. Second point, Abimelech's righteous rebuke. So that first point, God is all-knowing and all-powerful. It's all about God. Second point, Abimelech's righteous rebuke. And we find this in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? Abimelech is right to be indignant. What are you doing to me? And what's Abraham to say to that? Well, he's going to answer in a moment. But this is a reasonable response. What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? These things you've done, they ought not be done. Oh, prophet of God, (laughs) they ought not be done. Now, you and I all know people who have blown it in Jesus' name, whether they're actual pastors or in ministry in some way or just professing Christians. Take some level of peace, and that God is bigger than some hypocrite, right? Abraham is a hypocrite, and yet God's message is more powerful than Abraham's hypocrisy. God's sovereignty in saving sinners is infinitely more powerful than your hypocrisy or anyone else's. Now, hypocrisy is poison. I hate it, and so should you. But, praise God, perishing sinners around us aren't dependent upon our lack of hypocrisy to be saved. And when they point to that, don't be fooled by it. I have relatives who say, because of such and such, a professing believer or a minister or whatever did this, you know, I can't believe and I'm done. No, no, no. It's your sin. It's your sin. You're a rebel against God. You love your sin. You hate God. And that's your excuse. Don't let people pull out some excuse because of some professing servant of God, or an actual servant of God, who blew it, who blew it. Their their sin is immaterial, ultimately. Every sinner, right, every sinner, not victim, every sinner must deal with the holy God, their holy God, themselves. Stand on their own two feet, and they will stand on their own two feet before Him in judgment, or before Him in grace as they repent. So Abimelech's righteous rebuke. Third, look how quickly we dealt with that. So quick. Third, Abraham's deceptive strategy. Abraham's deceptive strategy, verse 11. And Abraham said, because I thought, he's answered Abimelech's rebuke, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. 
But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Verse 13, And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go. Save me, he is my brother. And this is at least the second time over that they have pulled this ruse. Abraham's deceptive strategy. Yeah. Verse 11. Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place. Isn't that interesting? I thought because the fear of God isn't in this place that I would engage in deception. Mind you, during wartime and during times dealing with criminals and whatnot, there is such a thing as righteous deception. One can debate whether or not this is in that category. I've thrown out back in chapter 12 that uh, perhaps one could argue that to a certain point, not being in his world, not living outside of what we enjoy, the security of a police force, the security of a sheriff and, and his deputies and jails and the security of law and order and a constitution reigning in our land. You're out in a, a lawless world where might makes right and you live in that world constantly. We can at least have more mercy for Abraham and understand where he's at. And, and I argued back in chapter 12 that perhaps Abraham is not as selfish as he looks. Perhaps he's not just looking out for number one, but even looking out to some level for Sarah. Because if he is, if he is murdered because of her beauty and she is taken, she may well become a, a slave, be used and abused and discarded in the most terrible way, rape and who knows what else. If he presents her as a sister and then tries to work through that, and, and he being the elder brother is not going to cooperate with a bride price, so to speak, and ultimately receive her back and move on. That might be what he had in mind to navigate a potential threat to her as well as himself. And so we don't fully know what motivated him to some level fear, but fear perhaps not just for himself and whatever motivated him. It's easy to judge someone when you have not lived in their world. Let's be merciful in our judgment and say that it's deception, but to what level is it just ruthless deception, completely self-serving, or is he trying to engage in strategy to navigate these waters? The one interesting thing you see in both these accounts, you don't find God rebuking him, and you do find blessing coming out of it both times, which I don't want to say means that that God is condoning, but it is interesting. And I think there's more to the story that we will get in glory if we care to ask, perhaps. And you let me know if you've saddled up to Abraham or had lunch with Sarah and talked about such things, you let me know. I'll probably not be the first one to ask for more insight (laughs) on those issues. But it's all very interesting to ponder. I just I want you to ponder these things from a position of grace, not judgment. It's easy to judge historic figures, whether it be reformers and some of the choices they made in a world where there was zero separation of church and state. And the world is ready to judge it all. They're ready to judge it all. And all their woke sentiments, they're ready to judge it all. Of course, Abraham's a ruthless misogynist who doesn't care about his wife at all and is just offering her up to become a, another you know, slave in a harem. Well, that's a pretty harsh judgment. It can't be justly made. But there are those ready and willing and actively making such judgments out there. And also the fact that Abraham's going to receive servants. Well, he's a slave master. Look, look it's incredibly evil. The Bible condones slavery. Well, it, it does, but not slavery based upon racism, more like indentured servanthood. It condones indentured servanthood. It does. That was the economic system of the world at the time, and it provides laws in order to protect said slaves or indentured servants. But it wasn't race-based chattel slavery as was present here 
in the United States of America in our early history. Before what? Before Christianity ultimately put an end to such slavery. So Abraham's deceptive strategy, he opens up with, I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. Funny thing. And they will kill me on account of my wife. Another thought. Why are they going to kill you on account of your wife? How old is Sarah now? Anyone? She's 90 years old. (laughs) And yet she's so beautiful, someone's going to kill you because of her beauty, because they want to take her. And that, that is the testimony. That's what's going on here. At 65... Back in chapter 12, she was so beautiful that she might be stolen away. And so things have changed. We're aging a little more rapidly. I would suggest that Abraham was pretty young and ruddy yet at 100. And, uh, and at 90, she wasn't barren because she was 90 necessarily. She was barren because she'd always been barren and had never been able to conceive. And so she's still a, a looker. She's still quite the beauty. And... Uh, and so beautiful that it's a threat to Abraham's life, which, mind you, in a lawless world, beauty is dangerous. Beauty is dangerous. In a lawless world, immodesty is incredible dangerous. We trained our women to be immodest in this culture, and our culture was more lawful, but as it gets less and less lawful, now, immodesty is never safe because it leads to sexual immorality, which leads to millions of babies being murdered, which leads to STDs and rape and all sorts of things. But in a lawless society immodesty produces lust, and lust reigns in men's hearts and comes out in the most vile and dangerous, despicable ways. And so uh, we need to start doing the math as a culture and as parents and saying, look, it was never right. It was never good. It was never morally safe, but it's getting increasingly dangerous to adorn yourself in such a way or to go out for a night of fun with no safeties, no, nothing, nothing to protect you from the whims of an evil man's heart. That, that's just madness. So they live in a lawless world where beauty is very dangerous. It can get you snatched and brought into you know, a new family to be a new wife or in a harem or to be raped and worse. Um, and it can get your husband killed and, and maybe all the other servants and their wives and children killed with them. And so, uh, this is the situation at hand. Uh, They don't fear God, and they'll kill me on account of my wife. Verse 12, but indeed she truly is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And now we've got another problem. Problems, 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 everywhere a problem. So she really is his sister. And again, our sensitivities are all bent out of shape, and rightly so. Not of my father, my mother, but of my father and another wife. That ought to disturb you. And yet again, we need to put it in its historical context. This is not so far from Adam and Eve. This is not so far after the fall that genetically speaking, um, you're going to have a problem in reproducing in such a relationship other than the problem that they in particular are having with the lack of conception and barrenness. But there's no genetic disorder issue that early in the history of mankind, that close to the fall. Generation after generation, the effects of the fall are multiplying and becomes more and more the issue, which is why I believe it's not until much later in Leviticus that God gives, and I think it's 100 years later, that God gives, uh, no, no, excuse me, it's 500 years later. 500 years later, God gives his law prohibiting Uh, such a relationship. And it's God's law that determines right and wrong, good and evil. And so uh, our sensitivity should be engaged by God's law and say, that's not right. That's disturbing. Unfortunately, there are certain sins that we're much more comfortable with, like fornication. There, There was a time in society where people were less comfortable with fornication, and they would feel more akin, now not the same way, but more akin about fornication to incest than today. Fornication is so, so prevalent. There certainly was a time where adultery was sickening. And to be an adulterer, not a good thing at all. And you would lose status and position and opportunity professionally even as an adulterer. Not good. Not good. As our sensitivities to sin diminish, uh, we have a few left over like incest, 
pedophilia and whatnot, which we ought to, uh, ought to be very disturbing, but we should be more disturbed by all of it. And the reason is because God condemns it as sin. God has defined it as sin, and the wage of sin is death. What makes fornication wrong? It is contrary to the command and the will of God. What makes adultery wrong? It is contrary to the command and will of God. And it wrongs, both in both those situations, the two people engaged are wronging each other. In adultery, they're wronging each other and the spouse or spouse is. And so we need to think about it historically. We need to think about it biblically. We need to uh, put sin in the sin category and have um, a, a sense of disgust, if you will, by all sexual sin and not be more comfortable with others. But know that sexual sin is sexual sin because God has defined it as sexual sin. And at that point, it had not been defined the command had not been given. And let me help you out a little further with this situation here with Abraham and his half-sister. There are those who want to make us more comfortable by going back and saying, well, it probably really wasn't his half-sister. It probably was maybe a distant cousin or something. And the, the Hebrew allows for such. And there is some argument for that, but I don't buy it. I think they have the same father and a different mother because that's what it says. And Every good translation says it. And so that's what I think. And I'm fine with that. Why? Because God's law had not condemned it. And I'm fine with that. Why? Because this isn't the first time it happened. Where did Seth get his wife? Seth is the third son of Adam and Eve. Where did Seth get his wife? Oh, wait. From Adam and not some other wife. From Adam and Eve. Same father. Same mother. Was that morally wrong? Was that disgusting and sick? No, it was morally pure. Absolutely fine. Because God had not forbidden it. And so, what should make us sick? You know, that moral situation, that just makes me sick. It should be because God commands us to condemn it. It should be because God prohibits this behavior. It should be because God calls this an abomination. And that's where you find that sin in Leviticus. When it is declared a sin, it's in the category of abomination. Don't do this. Don't do this. It's going to go really bad for you. Don't do this. Sin is not sin arbitrarily because we decide we don't like it culturally. Sin is not sin uh, arbitrarily because, uh, you know, somebody, some, some, Uh, government votes it in, votes it out, whatever. Uh, Sin is sin because God declares it to be sin. And Seth and his wife um, were blessed of God. And we're all descendants of Adam and Eve and their kids. And uh, we, we praise God for that reality. So Abraham's deceptive strategery. Um, She is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Verse 13, and it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house. Oh, put on the brakes. Uh, Adam, where are you? Oh, Lord, you know, uh, the woman you gave me. She gave me that fruit and I ate. That's exactly what Abraham just pulled here. That's exactly what he pulled. Um, He says... uh, It came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house. I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place wherever we go to say he is my brother. So, you know, God caused me to wander. And so I've got to do this in order to survive. Because God caused me to wander. Um, That's a bad argument. It's not an argument we want to make with Abimelech, who's in the position of being the, the righteous offended man, or to make with God like Adam did in the garden, the woman you gave me. Now, yeah, I gave her to you as your wife, and I told you to protect her. <laughs> I, I told you to defend her and provide for her. And, and the first time that was tested, the first time Satan shows up in the form of a serpent, what do you do? Uh, you let him talk to her, and you let him deceive her. And then you, with knowledge, eat of the forbidden fruit that she turned and gave you. It's on you, Adam. It's on you. So it's on Abraham. It's not on God. This is not a good justification for the position Abraham put Abimelech in. 
And again, I won't go through it all, but there is more to the story, I suspect, with Abraham and Sarah and what they were thinking. I do think there was some strategy there, and so you can have some level of mercy in your heart and mind for them. Uh, Ligonier Ministries says this on Genesis 20, that's R.C. Sproul's ministry, says, uh, we return to the book of Genesis to pick up our study in chapter 20. Having seen the end result of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham travels from Mamre toward uh, Negev in order to sojourn in Gerar. This region of Gerar was located within the borders of the promised land, corresponds roughly to the area just southeast of Gaza in the modern nation state of Israel. Abraham's time in Gerar bears many similarities to his sojourn in Egypt in chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. For this reason, a few textual critics argue that chapter, chapters 12 and 20 describe the same event and assert that Genesis is a patchwork of various sources and not primarily derived from Moses' pen. Yet while the two accounts share points of contact, Genesis 20 goes into more detail than chapter 12. Sarah is also less involved with the king in chapter 20. This suggests these chapters describe separate historical events. Moreover, those who say these two chapters are based on the same event usually do so reasoning that Abraham would not make the same mistake twice. Because none of us ever have. But this is hardly impossible. All people can point to an error in their lives that they have repeated. Indeed, Matthew Henry tells us, quote, It is possible that a good man may not only fall into sin, but relapse into the same sin through the surprise and strength of temptation and the weakness of the flesh. As we will come to learn, Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. I appreciate that Legionnaire Ministries, R.C. Sproul, uh, they, don't, they don't shrink from that. They don't try to explain it away. So many commentators do. Well, really, you know, not, not, not really the half-sister. Uh-uh, no. And I don't get the hypersensitivity to that. Put it in its biblical context. Can we not allow Seth to have a wife? We don't know where all these kids came from. After Adam and Eve, it's just a mystery. <laughs> it's like we're more comfortable with evolution than we are with the biblical account. And many are, tragically. He goes on, as we will come to learn, Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. Actually, this is further proof for Mosaic authorship. Sexual relations with one's half-sister are condemned later in Scripture, and so we would expect the author to glorify Abraham and leave out the details of Abraham's relation to Sarah if this story dates from the period after Moses. But Abraham's marriage to his half-sister is present for all to see. There is no attempt to make him conform to a later biblical law and show him to be holier than he really was. Great points there. Great points. So Abraham's deceptive strategery. Next point, God is faithful even when we aren't. And this is the main thing. This is the main thing. Verse 14 down through 16. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah's wife to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So God is faithful even when we aren't. Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. Now, why did he do that? Because Abraham was such a great guy and had done him a solid. You really took care of me there, Abraham. No. Abraham had done him wrong, and yet God, through Abimelech, blessed Abraham. And I think Abimelech blessed Abraham on behalf of God, for the glory of God, out of love of God, out of submission to God, out of honor for God, and perhaps out of fear of God, since there's been a lot of talk recently between God and Abimelech about Abimelech dying and all his servants with him. And this, again, gives me hope for Abimelech's soul. Repentance with action, right? And who knows what else is going on in Abimelech's life. Abimelech was in the right in this circumstance, but Abimelech is a sinner like all sinners. And so who knows what this meeting with God uh, entails in Abimelech's broader life. All the details are left out except for this interaction with Abraham. But here we have Abimelech seemingly expressing fear of God, faith in God, 
love of God by blessing God's prophet Abraham. Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. Again, I'm going to touch on those servants. Don't pull back from that. Don't pull back from that. Don't go woke. Don't go woke. Don't do it. Don't do it. Resist it. Do not be ashamed of the word of God or the God of the word. Don't do it. Don't set yourself up as judge of God, and don't let anyone else. Don't pull back. They want to judge God because there is a form of slavery in the Bible, they're not in a position to judge God. No man is. How about judging God because God wiped out every man, woman, and child with a global flood? Always one-up them. Don't retreat, press in. Oh, there's slavery in the Bible. You know what? You know what's in the Bible? God wiped out every man, woman, and child on the planet with a global flood. You know what else is in the Bible? Let's go bigger yet. God's going to wipe out every man, woman, and child with fire. There is fire coming to consume the cosmos, and there'll be no place for any sinner, and all men are sinners, to hide, and they'll stand before God. You put them back in the seat of the judged. Don't let them put your God, the God, in the seat of the judged, and they, as the judge up above them with a gavel, don't dare, don't dare do that. And so Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Go wherever you like. And then to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. And I think that thus she was rebuked is that she said, he, he said, your brother, I, I give it to your brother which is referencing that she lied to him as well. Uh, Thus far, all of his interactions have been with Abraham, and he's rebuked Abraham. Why have you done this evil to me? So this is this one interaction with Sarah. God is faithful even when we aren't. God took this situation that you would think ultimately would result in chastening upon Abraham and Sarah, and God worked it for grace and mercy. So whatever level of sin, whatever level of sin we want to charge Abraham and Sarah with in this deception, again, I think there's more to the picture than we get right off the the page, this brief narrative account. I think there's more going on there. But whatever level of sin we want to ascribe, there must have been repentance because God chastens his children because he's a faithful father. So there must have been repentance to whatever level of sin there was there because they come out the back end of this blessed, blessed. And let me just say, not to make an argument for sin in your lives at all, but God in his mercy takes even things that we mean for evil sometimes and works them for the good of his elect. It's amazing how merciful God is to us. Now, praise God, he also is a faithful father, Hebrews 12, and chastens us, chastens us perfectly. And it's painful, it says, and it's good for us. But so many times, and if you're not conscious of it, you need to spend some time thinking about your life. Something that you meant for evil, God ultimately allowed and ordained and worked for your good. Amazing good. And he does that here. And I've got to wonder, again, to be merciful, wonder, Abraham is following God in faith. He's out there on the, the cutting edge of faith. You know, living or dying out there in the wilderness where anyone may come at any time to murder you and take all your stuff, take your wife, your kids, and everything else. And, uh, and yeah, there was some fear and some missteps, and, and God was merciful. Merciful. I'm pained, I confess, by so many of the commentators, by, by so many of the sermons I've heard, the judgment we heap on people. We have not walked them 10 feet in their sandals out there in the desert, out there in the wilderness, much less a mile. There's a reason Abraham and Sarah are in the hall of faith, which, by the way, I put in your bulletin, and I titled it the hall of faithfulness. Because the more I, I've studied the patriarchs' lives, um, it's the hall of God's faithfulness to raise up sinners and hold them fast in faith. And so on your own time, go read Hebrews 11 
verses 8 through 19 there in your bulletin. But our final point, our faithful God answers our flawed prophet's prayer as God promised Abimelech, verse 17. So Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants. Then they bore children for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Our faithful God answers our flawed prophet's prayers and he will answer your flawed prayers as well as you pray them in genuine faith and humility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons we have learned today. May we not quickly forget them. Lord, we are challenged by Scripture like this. May it be edifying to our souls, Lord. Grant us maturing faith, growing faith, and understanding of who you are and who we are as we gaze upon saints who have gone before us. And we pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.